Welcome to Case by Case, a podcast by Luke Zadkovich and Callum Chain of Xyla Floyd Zadkovich. It's great to have you with us today listening in um, and uh, I, I welcome my colleague in this podcast, Callum. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Luke. I'm good. Yeah. Thank you to everybody listening as well. Uh, Callum, I, I noticed the post that you put up um, launching the uh, this podcast on, on LinkedIn, which I, I really liked. I, I thought, um, do you want to just give a little um, a, a little summary of what this um, this podcast is about from your perspective? I really like your you know your description about um, your enjoyment of case law. Yeah, I think. So there's there's a lot of legal content available, and if you want to find out the the decisions of any case or what any case means in a in a short form summary, then there's a lot of places that you can go and look for it. But really, there's nothing quite like going to the case law itself and reading reading you know the judges' thoughts in their own words, um, and it's something that I really enjoy doing. It's 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 one of my favourite things about being a lawyer, and it's something that you know I I didn't. I, I studied history at university and then came to law through the conversion course where you're just learning kind of case, um, the, the case ratios without really engaging with the cases in a huge amount of detail. So it's actually something that was sprung on me only when I started doing kind of research tasks um, as, as a trainee. And it was one of the parts of the job that I enjoyed the most was just really reading um, these cases in the, in the judge's words the way that they articulate these arguments, they look, they 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 kind of sift through all of the um, all of the excess facts and 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 hone in on the on what's important um, and write in a, in a really you know crisp, clear, logical way. Um, something I've always enjoyed, um, and we we've, we've discussed before various cases, and I think we, we both have a similar approach in that we both like to you know go back to the original source, read the read the case, uh, kind of cover to cover if you like and, um, and 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 we've had some great discussions about cases so we thought you know why not share them why not have the discussions in a in an open in a more open forum um, and the the kind of the way that we've that we've decided to do it and the way that we've been doing it so far is that we each read we each read the case um, and then we just jump straight on straight on to um, a call and we hit, we hit record and we just get our organic thoughts um, without without too much tinkering around the edges to make sure we're saying exactly the right things. You just have you know exactly what's on top of our mind when we're reading these cases. Yeah, it, it, well said. Um, I, I'm enjoying it too, and I'll, I'll be I'll be honest. I uh, I I haven't had as much of an opportunity as I would like over the last few years um, to sit down and just read case um from cover to to cover to cover um and have that discipline of reading every single word in a case um really unpacking it at a a granular level um i think with some of the responsibilities that i have in the in the firm and um caseload and all of that you you get into uh, a habit of being more mechanical in, in your approach and um looking at a case for the ratio, for what it's what it stands for. How does that um, help your case? How does it hurt your case? You know, what are the ways around it? Um, if it's if it's something you don't like, how can we distinguish it? And then you know, being quite more mechanical in, in the practice of law, and and what the the this podcast has has enabled me to do is to really um, 
read the cases for their own sake, you know, rather than what what's the purpose? What are we trying to get out of this case for for a for a client or anything else? Just actually reading it and thinking about it in a more broad way. Um, and then thinking, well, how would clients more generally um, find this case relevant to them? How could it um, be of interest to them? How might it help their business or or what they're doing? And then um, jotting down a few notes and and then kicking it around with you. So I, look, I, I know we're still early in the in the process. Um, Let's let's see how we go after a few more, but I, I, I I'm enjoying it for now. And, exactly. and, and this this is actually a, a very good one for that because I always find that um, Males's decisions are really well written. He, which is you know, it's kind of absurd for me to say that a a, a um, court of appeal judge's decisions are well written. Of course, they're well written, but Males in particular, I, I really like the way that he that he articulates his thoughts, and he's not afraid to shy away from just say, stating something very plainly as he does a couple of times in this judgment and those those kind of give me little moments of joy when I'm reading a case law too the, the judge you know effectively sitting down one of one side and saying no it's, this is very simple well it's funny you say that because I, I can remember um, oh, I must be going back on 15 years ago or something like that and, and, and don't hold me to the exact date but but there are thereabouts and having um, uh, Mr. Mayo's QC, as he then was, um, on an arbitration as a sole arbitrator. And I was um, kind of used to the more, I wouldn't say laissez-faire, that's putting it uh, too softly, but um, the the ability in arbitral tribunals to get some play here and there on, on timings. And I'll, I'll never forget the first arbitration that I had with um, uh, now Lord Justice Mayo's as an arbitrator, he would not. Um, he was very strict. Let's just say on timings and approached it very much like a, a court judge would. Um, good, good practice for his later career. <laughs> exactly. So okay, let's let's get into this this case today. Um, it's a court of appeal decision, English court of appeal decision, uh, the decision of Septo Trading and. Tin Trade Limited, um, recent decision uh, in um, in May 2021, uh, Lord Justices uh, Moylan, uh, Males and Phillips uh, gave the judgment. Uh, Lord Justice Males gave the um, the leading judgment, and the two other justices uh, agreed and concurred uh, without without really further comment. Um, it's just on Septo when, when the name popped up again, uh, Callum, I don't know if you had this reaction, but I remember the first instance decision coming out shortly after um, the lockdown. And it, it's one of those cases that's stuck in my mind as being kind of around the start of um, the, the pandemic. Time. And to now, to now think that we are um, dealing with the Court of Appeal decision on that decision. Um, time has moved on. <laughs> I like that as a, as a frame of reference for the passing of time, where a Court of Appeal decision, hence. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, exactly. Um, so uh, I was just thinking, do, do you want to, do you want to um, give a, a summary of the facts of, uh, of this decision? Um, probably... M- I was thinking spend more time on the the legal principles on this and and keep it quite high level on on facts but you know it, yeah. I, I, over to you 
And I think the facts are, are actually quite um, straightforward, or at least, um, as I've said, the way that they've been presented by males, at least, is, is quite straightforward. So you have um, Septo, who are, the, who are the buyers, and Tintrade, who are the sellers of a cargo of heavy sulfur fuel oil. And the, the contract that they'd agreed, as is extremely common in shipping uh, commodities uh, trading, you, you effectively have a, have a base document with, with, with the majority of the terms and then the core uh, recap, if you like, or um, uh, effectively the, the, the key terms agreed between the parties. And, and the recap, again, is, as is extremely typical, refers to the... Uh, Refers by incorporation or it incorporates by reference the um, the, the the body document, which in this case is the uh, the, the BP terms. Um, and here the question is: what, Was there a conflict between the recap and the and the background terms, the BP terms? Um, effectively, the what had happened was that in, in the recap, it said that there was a load port survey to take place to assess the quality of the of the cargo. Um, and the recap said that the result of that load port survey was to be binding. It said the words result to be binding. Um, and the recap also said that where the terms of the recap were not in conflict, the, the BP terms would apply. Um, and then you turn to the BP terms, which, which say that the load port survey is binding for invoicing purposes. And um, surprise, surprise, the load port survey says everything is fine, but in fact, it later transpired that the, the cargo was slightly outside the contractual specification. So you then have this dispute, and the, um, the, the dispute was essentially whether the, the, the load port survey was binding in entirety, or whether those two terms between the recap and the BP background terms should be read together, such that the load port survey was in, was in fact binding, but it was only binding insofar as it was relevant for invoicing. Um, yeah. And obviously, the the seller is is trying to say that the the load port result was binding, and the buyer is trying to open up this dispute so that they can bring their claim. Absolutely. So it's a case of it's a case of inconsistency between um, the specially agreed terms, and I'm going to call them the printed terms. Um, I think that's the phrase that's used in in the decision, but we know them as sometimes you know that the head charter party or the the prior charter party. Um, or, or, or kind of other other general terms and conditions, uh, but it's it's really that point between having a recap, uh, which is specifically agreed, and then by incorporation pulling in a bunch of other terms um, that have not been specifically agreed on that trade. They may have been specifically agreed previously, or they may just be general terms and conditions of one of the parties. Uh, and this, for our, our listeners in um, in shipping, uh, in commodities trading, and and in other general um, commercial um, uh, contract settings, will be very used to this. This is not an unusual um, case at all. Uh, and from our perspective, it's uh, an issue that comes up time and time again because um, often what happens is. The, the traders or the, 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 the chartering personnel, if it's in a, on a, in a shipping context, they're focused on the specially agreed terms, the recap. They're, they're, they're on the phone, they're talking about price, they're talking about where the discharging port is, where the loading port is, what the quantity is, what the type of vessel is, all these things, the quality of the, of the, um, of the oil in this case, what's, what's going to be the process for deciding on um, uh, the quality 
what's the certification regime, which is what this case kind of goes to. Uh, but the, the, the trader is focused on um, the, the recap and the, the key main terms that are being agreed. I, I dare say that many a time they don't even look at the, the printed terms um, because they are of the view from a commercial perspective that as long as we're agreeing it in the recap, it doesn't matter what's in the printed terms, it's going to be overridden by this. Uh, and that commercial approach to, to this, I think is actually reflected in the law as we're going to um, explore here. Uh, but it's a it's, it's an issue that comes up when we get contracts that are in this composite format. We see it time and time again. Yeah, and I think it's as you say. We'll we'll go into the into the discussion probably now. We'll go into the discussion. Um, but what I think was uh, perhaps where the law was before this judgment, um, and and I'll be I've been interested to to hear your view on this. Whether you think this is this has shifted the law in any direction, or whether this just kind of restates the law as it as it is um, with application to the the specific facts in this case. But certainly, where it was in the um, in the in the Pagnan and Tradex case, um, which is referenced in this judgment, which is a which is an older case. Let me just find the. I think it's um, 80, eighty-seven. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Nineteen eighty-seven. Um, yeah, court of appeal, court of appeal decision to English court of appeal. Yeah, it got a, and it was it was Bingham uh, who gave the leading judgment mm. there. I think. Um, yeah. And and he 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 is very clear that the printed terms are part of the same contract. And I think that was, that I've, I've, I've seen that phrase used before in a number of times, you know, a number of occasions, if, if you're trying to argue that um, a term you don't like in the printed terms is being kicked out because it, it, it doesn't fit neatly with a term in the recap, then people can turn to Pagman and Tradex and they can say, no, these are all part of the same contract. And, you know, they almost have the same, the same uh, contractual effect because uh, it's all part of one agreement. And that that argument uh, is slightly at odds, as you say, with with the way that it seems like these contracts are all drafted, um, and the way that these contracts are entered into, which is effectively you have a, a heavily negotiated recap, and then effectively a, a checkbox for you. You know, do you accept the terms and conditions? Which we all know that we, you know, you just click accept, and that, mm. that's almost how I feel like the printed terms tend to tend to form these agreements. Yeah, and that's uh, yeah, that's a key one actually. That that issue of um, is the printed terms part? Do you just consider it part of the overall contract when you're dealing with these inconsistency arguments, um, or do you approach it more in the in the way that um, Mr. Justice Males, or Lord Justice Males, does here, um, in first looking at what is in the specially agreed terms. Um, and then once you establish what that term is and means, you then put it against the printed terms. It's, it's this issue that was actually um, debated as to where to start with the inquiry. You know, do you start looking at the whole set of terms, specially agreed and printed as one, or do you start the inquiry at the specially agreed terms? And, I, and Lord Justice Miles approaches it very much from the perspective of looking first at the, the, the specially um, uh, negotiated term first and then stacking that up. Uh, and how, how does the printed term affect that, um, uh, that specially agreed term? 
Yeah, exactly. And, I, and this was one of the moments that I quite liked in the judgment where mm. y- you could almost sense the frustration of Justice Mails with the argument where he was saying, okay, so we need to start by working out what the recap means. And then the argument from the other side, or, or the argument, obviously, from uh, the party trying to say the recap and the uh, printed terms should be re- read together was, well, you can't, you can't analyse what the recap means unless you also read that in the light of the printed terms. And Mail says, well, it's necessary to start somewhere, so <laughs> good which is totally fair enough. You have to at least start, you know, you have to have to work out what some of it means. The other yeah. thing I'd, that I'd say is you, there's, 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 a, there's a bit of guidance in the recap itself in this case, because the incorporation of the BP GTCs, the printed terms, is expressly where not in conflict with the recap. So you have that primacy of the recap um, in, 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 within the recap itself which gives some guidance at least to the court in saying, okay, well, we need to see if there is if there is a conflict. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really like the, the judgment in, in the way that it traverses, um, if, if, I'm, if I can say this uh, about a court of appeal judgment, um, but, but I really like how it traverses the, um, the principles uh, that, that are at play, starting with Pagnan and, and Tradax Ocean Transportation, then moving on to Alexander and West Bromwich uh, Mortgage, another Court of Appeal decision, and goes through the, the various uh, key elements in, in this inconsistency inquiry, and then pulls it all together. And uh, I think it's paragraph 28, which which I'll get into a bit later, but I, I really like that paragraph because it, it pulls all the principles together and then puts it into one statement. So I, I know for myself, the next inconsistency um, issue that I have, uh, where it's where, where it isn't just a, okay, uh, this is clear to me, I move on, but one where I'm really looking closely at the point, I'll just go to that that paragraph um, because I think it pulls it together so yeah. nicely. But to, before we go to that paragraph, should we just touch on some of the um, the, the principles? And the the first quote that I, I pulled out of um, uh, this decision, which is a quote from the Pagnan decision, um, and this is quoting Lord Justice Bingham, it is not enough if one term qualifies or modifies the effect of another. To be inconsistent, a term must contradict another term or be in conflict with it, such that effect cannot fairly be given to both clauses. It's this concept of qualifies or modifies uh, that is picked up um, in this decision. It's picked up in other decisions as well. And that's, a, that's an important concept to keep in mind when comparing the two terms. Yeah, and I think that's really, if, 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 you're, if you're kind of tweeting this case uh, as in as short form as possible, that's really the distinction that, that this case drives home. It, do, does the printed term modify or qualify the, uh, the recap or is it fundamentally inconsistent? Exactly, exactly. And then Lord Justice Wolfe, he uses the, the phrase um, supplemented. You know, it, it, it's this, it, it's almost this idea of can the two terms sit nicely next to each other, supplementing each other, qualifying, modifying each other, or are they just inconsistent with each other? Do they conflict? Do they contradict? 
And the other phrase from Lord Justice Dillon is when posing the rhetorical question, what is meant by inconsistency? It's when two clauses cannot be read sensibly together. And I think that's another good way of looking at this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that this is where this is where I would say that this judgment doesn't really affect that law at all. It just applies it neatly and quite sensibly, I think, to the to the facts here, particularly the the, the kind of more more granular way uh, or the, the the more granular facts when you look at exactly how how the payment mechanics were supposed to happen under this contract. Um, yeah. Which maybe we should just talk through now that I've raised it, um, because the 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 argument for on the side of kind of supplementation uh, or qualification um, was that you've got one clause that says the load port survey is, is to be binding, and that's the recap, and then in the printed terms it says it's to be binding for invoicing purposes. So the buyer who's trying to open up this dispute and saying and trying to say that the the load port survey is not binding, says, look, look, you can read these two together. You can say that the result is binding and give effect to the recap, but you just qualify that and say that it's actually binding for invoicing purposes. So as a buyer, we have to pay first, and then subsequently we can bring a claim. If you know, if, if we disagree with the, um, with, with the survey, we can get further surveys and we can bring a claim. But for invoicing purposes, we're held to the standard at the load port survey. And the, and the buyer said, I'm totally happy with that. Um, but I still have the right to bring this claim later. I'm not totally bound by the by the load port survey because the printed terms qualify that slightly. Um, and this was something that that the uh, the court of appeal explored. And the way that this trade was uh, was financed um, was essentially the, through a letter of credit. And uh, there was a bank uh, who, on production of documents, were were going to release money to the seller. Um, and if those documents were produced to the bank, then the bank was always going to release the money. And when they looked at it in that light, they said, well, actually, th- there's, no, there's no value to this term. It doesn't do anything if it's said to be binding for invoicing purposes. The effect of being binding for invoicing purposes effectively means pay now, fight later. But in any case, because of the way that this trade was financed, you were always going to pay first and fight later. So, so the clause in the recap, um, if if read in that qualified manner, actually doesn't have any effect. So, you, so, so the question for the court, in practical terms, is: Does the recap term have effect, or does it have no effect? Does it have a um, effectively um, a kind of illusory effect? Um, I think the judge said, and I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, and sorry to jump in there, but. It, it, the interpretation of um, the clause that the buyer is putting forward uh, would, in this case, it would actually put it alongside the, the payment clause. It would actually mean that there's no binding um, certificate at all. It, it's effectively rendering what was specially agreed in the recap redundant. So, so you do actually have here um, the black and white scenario, coming back to Alexander and West Bromwich, where in, in that case, um, that was the case with um, uh, Lord Justice Hamblin. And in that case, she was exploring the RWE Power Bentley decision, uh, which had one part of the contract 
requiring that the building be painted black and another part um, <laughs> saying that it had to be painted white. I just thought that was such a, <laughs> such a neat example. Um, and, and then they go, well, this is a clear example of a, of a literal contradiction between clauses. But inconsistency is not limited to that. Uh, and and then, you know, refers to the Pagnan decision as um, this concept of clauses not being fairly and sensibly read together. Uh, and here, that is clearly the case, that the two cannot be read um, together. At first blush, it doesn't look like a black and white scenario. But actually, when you look closely at what um, the buyer's interpretation would mean in this contract, in the context context of this contract, it is actually almost a black and white scenario. Um, the, there's This kind of pulls in the other concepts that are touched upon as well. Um, albeit I don't think in this case it was decisive because, as I say, uh, the inconsistency when unpacked is actually clearer um, than, than maybe first thought. But those are the considerations of reasonableness and business common sense. Uh, and so it's, it's approaching this question of inconsistency, having regard to what the business common sense is. It's not just a literal or a, or a mechanical exercise. And the, the overall um, uh, exercise or what we're looking to see is, is that printed term, is that general term transforming or negating the, the specially agreed term? And it's, it's all of those concepts kind of being pulled together um, that, that I'm not as clear in setting it out as, as, as the decision, um, but I would very much recommend uh, if you have a case on this to to go to um, to paragraph 28 of uh, Lord Justice Mayle's decision, which walks you through um, step by step uh, what to do here. And the last point I'd, I'd say on on principle, Callum, uh, before we kind of move to to wrap things up and any final thoughts that that you've got, is the um, the concept that if the specially agreed term is part of the main purpose of the contract, you know, is it a central feature, if you like, of the contractual scheme? Um, and it, it, that is another um, factor to consider. Uh, it's another relevant um, point in this analysis on um inconsistency. So if the printed term is detracting from a, a, a key issue or a central feature, then it's likely to be inconsistent with it. And when you think about um, the, the provision in this case that we're talking about, whether a certificate is binding or not as to quality, that is, a, that is a, an important feature. That's, that's a very important feature, whether you have the ability to argue over quality after the event or whether you're agreeing at the outset to a mechanism for determining quality. Yeah, ex exactly. And I think that the, just from, from my side, I kind of maybe a couple of final thoughts is the, the first, as, you know, as, as, we've, as we've said, the, the, key, the key issue here is do we have a, do we have a conflict? Do we have a, have a conflict between... Um, a contractual regime in the recap and a contractual regime in the printed terms 
And I think that's dealt with um, as succinctly as possible by Lord Justice Mayles, where he says, a regime in which a certificate of quality is binding is fundamentally different from one in which it is not. And I think that's really the bottom line on that question. And yeah. I, I enjoyed reading that sentence. I thought that's, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> it's a pretty disappointing uh, thing to read if you're on the wrong side of this one, but it's, it's completely fair enough. And sometimes just stating it plainly is the right way to go. And then the second question that, that, that you kind of opened there um, is, is, is another interesting one, which is to what extent are the courts giving credence in contractual interpretation to the commercial common sense of a contract? And I know that we have these high-level cases like Rainy Sky and Cookman Bank, where it's you know, very much looking at the commercial intention, and that's kind of been paired back with a more literalistic approach with cases like Arnold and Britain, but even in those cases, they, they still say it's it is a key part of the um, it is a key part of the process of, of understanding a contract and interpreting a contract to look at it through a, through a commercial lens, and I think that's really well done in this judgment too. He, you know, he says this is a, a central term; it's a central feature of the agreed contractual scheme, and we've got to stand back and look at this in the in in the context of the intention of the parties as practical business people doing you know going about their business buying and selling these cargoes of oil what were they trying to achieve by including in the recap the words result to be binding well they were they were they were agreeing to be bound by by the results of the load port survey and you know giving effect to that and the one final question that I'd maybe put to you as a final thought is I, I wondered whether at the, at the first instance there was a reluctance to suppress a claim that was otherwise quite straightforward by the reliance on the load port survey that turned out not to be correct or it appears to have turned out not to have been correct. Because the, even though the contractual terms taken in isolation give you a very, you know, very clear result that the load port survey is to be binding, the effect of that term is actually extremely draconian on the buyer because the buyer has bought a cargo, which it turns out is outside the contractual specification, but they're bound by the survey, which it turns out may have been wrong. And I can see why the court would, would want to at least give the opportunity to the buyer to bring a claim. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see I can see that. I can see how, um, to the extent that, you know, fact finders... Um, Kind of can be swayed on on some of these points, um, uh, by by looking at the draconian effect. I can see how um, uh, allowing an, a debate about whether this cargo was um, actually of good quality or not um, seems to be a fair thing to do. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I don't know whether that was really what what was um, at play. In the first instance, I, I, I tend to think not. Um, I, I tend to think it was more around this concept of qualification or um, modification, the, the idea that, well, there's still a binding certificate. It's still, it's still being referenced in the printed terms. It's just having a more limited effect. And if you think about it in that way, I don't think it's right here, but if you, if you think about another scenario where the the recap is setting out a regime let's say it is a um, a certification regime or a testing regime and then the printed term adds some additional requirements to that or qualifies it somehow but doesn't do away with the whole regime 
um, gives a bit more detail, you know, that kind of scenario. You can see how um, in that scenario you could be much more in a a qualification scenario. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's there's always a tendency, um, a, a very positive tendency, to seek to give effect to the entirety of a contract and not to say, well, that clause can't have any effect. There's the, the, the bias uh, is almost, unless there's a really clear conflict, you try and give effect to every single part of the contract. Yeah, yeah, I do. It, it, yeah, that's right. The, the, business, the business common sense point, though, is, is important um, and it does come through most certainly in this decision. Uh, and and, and the, if I can bring it back round full circle to one of the earlier points, I, I think that was almost most clearly driving um, this decision on where to start on that question of how do we approach this, um, this question, where do we start the inquiry? We start it by looking at what the parties actually agreed for this trade. And from there, we then run it through this this test and compare it to what's in the printed terms. And for me, that's a a much more commercial approach. I don't think this decision answer to your question fundamentally changes anything on the existing law. I think it pulls it all together and does a very good job, if I may say, at doing so. But on that point, um, this question of where to start, it, it may have shifted the inquiry somewhat or, or, or focused the emphasis of the inquiry on, um, on, the, on the recap, on what's been specially agreed, and then everything else comes after that. And to the extent that you and I have both heard that, well, no, the, the, the Pagnan decision is kind of a principle that you look at it all as one contract, and it is one contract, but... If, the, the, the inquiry we're conducting here is one of inconsistency and comparing two different terms within a contract and what's the priority and what's the approach that you undertake that. And to that extent, this decision, I think, clarifies um, how to go about it. And it's a really good decision if you ever have an inconsistency case. Yeah, exactly, which do pop up all the time. <laughs> they do, they do. And we, we, could, we could take this conversation off... Um, onto uh, other contract formation questions, uh, which we see all the time, both in the US and in England, um, and the differences between the two jurisdictions. And we've had quite a few on the go, actually, um, over the last year. So we'll, we'll, let's save that for another another podcast. But it, it's it's a really fascinating um, area, and it, it's one of those areas for me that. Um, You've you've got what is happening there in real life between commercial parties on one side, and then what is the actual contractual framework and interpretation next to it, and how do we get those things working together? How do we make sense of it um, when the commercial parties are not typically looking at it from a you know from a, a legal legal um, perspective? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, agreed. Well, look forward to that conversation in due course. All right, Callum. Good one. I've enjoyed today. Um, Thank you for for batting this one back and forth uh, with me. Uh, Thank you to everyone who's listening in to our podcast. We're really delighted that that you're listening. Thank you. We hope this is um, of of interest, uh, of some value for for you and your practice, your business. Um, And if you have any questions, 
if you'd um, if you'd like us to talk about any particular topics or any cases that uh, you're aware of, just drop us a line. You can find our our details um, quite easily on the Zyla Floyd Zadkovich uh, website. And if if I may ask, just a final um, uh, a final point. If you're able to um, click subscribe or follow us on the podcast, we're on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. That'd be great, and it, it, this uh, the, the weekly podcast will then drop straight into your into your feed on on or about Thursdays every week. So thanks again. Until next time, take care. Thanks everybody. Goodbye.